All right, all right, all right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right, well, we've got a, um, a ways to go here, and let me get our all work is sacred. Yeah, I see the world through kind of a dual lens of theology and economics, and so what this talk might be a little bit different. It's going to be a little bit different than your average talk here in chapel. And even as we have questions along the way, maybe you have questions or thoughts or, or comments along the way, uh, there's, there's a QR code that you can respond. Or I'll have the bit.ly. The QR codes on the remaining slides will be a little bit small if you want to grab that and just be ready. We'll come back uh, towards the end, and my goal is to give some time to respond to as many questions or thoughts or perspectives that you might have afterwards. Um, in the, in the, in this, I'm describing this as a conversation. We're going to do some storytelling, although I do storytelling with data, but also with real people. So we're going to tell sto stories here a little bit about the fact that your work, my work, the work we do every day, um, our lived experiences matter in the kingdom. And I, I do have my wife, Carrie, here. Yay. Um, if you're in class with me, you, you know that I refer to her as my CPA. And um, I, I talk about my CPA quite frequently. And I, I would say, in terms of her, she, she's a CPA, specializes in taxation. And everything in this message, she lives out every single day. I'll just commend that. Um, with her clients, she represents Jesus to them. She represents financial expertise, but she represents Jesus, and she does life with her clients in, in many ways. Life, death, excitement, you know, things that are going on great in family. But really, um, again, I have the, uh, obviously, I married her, um, and I have the greatest respect, and of the two of us, uh, she is definitely the, the better of the two of us and the smarter of the two of us. Now, in this uh, conversation about all work is sacred, I have a couple of convictions, and I'll put scripture on the board, uh, on the screen, and also kind of reference scripture, and really underlying this is a theology, some of which, uh, uh, that, that underpins this, some of which I'll draw out explicitly, some implicitly. Um, I could go to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis were created in the image of God. God created us to reflect his image in the world. In Genesis 2, he charged us with work. So work was created before the fall. God calls us to work. Work is a good thing. Genesis 3, sin happens, and it doesn't make work not part of God's plan, but it mars it. So that the work we have is frustrated and maybe more difficult than it could otherwise be in a world that didn't have sin. But a theological or biblical summary, I think, of all of that is Ephesians 2.10. And I say it in class. I say it frequently about you and about me, is that uh, each one of us is God's masterpiece. You are God's unique masterpiece, and he's created you and made you anew in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to do. The, the works that you do now and for the rest of your life aren't by accident. It's how he has uniquely designed you. And we'll kind of unpack that here today. Now, I love these Wednesday kind of Discipleship Wednesday sessions, and I've been inspired by some of my colleagues and peers. Um, you know, there's been, let's see, oh, here, I pressed the right wrong button. Um, Andy Scudinga, always inspirational. Um, 
pain and, pain and suffering is coming. I, I love that. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more optimistic than that today. Um, no, but um, no, actually, it, he also said a satisfaction is possible. And it was in the context of uh, mental, uh, emotional well being. But as he said that, I'm like, well, that's for all of our lives, right? That God calls us to be whole in all things. I mean, if, if there's satisfaction, um, maybe I could have satisfaction in work. It doesn't mean it's always easy, always enjoyable, um, but that I could have satisfaction in work. Uh, Stacy Hepburn said that, um, really out of her personal story, she said, I bring my education and the power of Jesus to impact people's lives. And she lives that out as an example, but here's the good news, you can do that also, no matter what your job, vocation, career plan is. Jeff Deo said, uh, your life song sings louder than your church song. <laughs> so the work that we do in and out of the church and in the community and in our daily job is an opportunity to reflect God to that. And if you, if you like the, even this metaphor of our life as a song, as a metaphor, uh, John Foreman from Switchfoot has an excellent uh, TEDx talk kind of in that space. Um, but actually, this statement here, I think, is a good jumping off point into kind of the theological foundations that I'll kind of unpack here. And it's that, uh, Jeff said that it's extravagant worship is, our response to our, is a response to our understanding of what God has done for us. Now, in the context of his discipleship Wednesday, uh, that was expressed through, you know, dancing, singing, exuberance in worship within the context of the church, but it doesn't have to stay there. My extravagant worship could be how I bring myself to my daily work, the excellence, the energy, the excitement, the enthusiasm the, that I, we, each of us brings to that is an expression. And really I see in this statement a theology straight out of Romans 12.1 where it says that I, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, because of God's mercy, and really, if you think Romans chapters one through 11, Paul has unpacked, here's all the good, merciful things God's done on our behalf. And if you want that list, I just one time categorized and made a list. Here's the endless list of all of the examples of God's mercy offered in, in chapters one through 11. Therefore, because of that great mercy, Offer your bodies, the entirety of your lives, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is, this is really what worship is. We get to worship God in and out of the church, out of the sanctuary, by actually living our lives in ways that please him. I like how Eugene Peterson unpacks this in the message. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your ordinary, your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping you're eating, you're going to class, you're researching writing papers, you're hanging out in the residence halls, your community time, your time at the gym, your time in teaching in public school classrooms, your uh, counseling in uh, counseling centers across this state and country, your work in manufacturing plants and in warehouses, your work in community, uh, in corporate boardrooms, take all of this work, and you're walking around kind of life and place it before God as an offering. Everything that we do in every moment of every day is an opportunity to worship God. In fact, actually, let, let's, if you participate with me, let's say this, actually. Um, responsive. So, 
here's what I want you to do with me. God helping you. Is anybody responding? Come on. I want you to respond back. Sorry, maybe I was not clear, clearly. Um, I want this responsive. So, here's what I want you to do with me. Okay. Um, God helping you. Take your everyday ordinary life. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around kind of life. And place it before God as an offering. I think that's powerful. And I, if I really imbibe that in every part of my being, it changes how I, how I live and how I work, how I approach work, how I see work. Now, I'll hit a couple of myths. So one myth kind of in this space is um, if my work and my vocation or my career, my job, however we want to term it, is in the marketplace, the sacredness of my worship associated with my work is limited, emphasize that word, to evangelistic witnessing at work and financial giving to Christian ministries. Um, And the key word is limited. Whatever we do for the rest of our lives, God calls me to be part of a local church, invested financially my time, energy, and efforts, and and, and God calls me to do that, and as a family, we do that. Um, God calls me to be a witness at work in my community but we'll unpack kind of over the next moments that um, my worship is a lot more than that. And if you, li- if you limit your view of work as worship to simply those things, I think it'll mar, honestly, your understanding of your work, and you'll serve God less um, effectively. Now, Ellington Porter said in uh, one of our Wednesday sessions that relationships are the best form of currency. And I think work is a great opportunity for witness. I've had, um, I had a, a non-practicing Jewish coworker during Christmas say, I mean, this wasn't like a rhetorical question. This was like an honest question. You could tell kind of by tone. Um, do you think Jesus really existed? I mean, just, it was, it was like, it wasn't like a, a it, it was like, hey, we're celebrating Christmas, which is this, this account of the birth of Jesus. And I think it, it, hers was more as a historical figure. Did Jesus, I'm like, well, let's, let's talk about that. So God opens up opportunities. Um, here's a couple of photos here. It's, um, this is me with um, Naresh and Sri Devi, his wife. Um, my, my son Jude is in there. And then in one of the photos, you can see Jude talking to uh, Reza and Kyle, uh, Naresh and uh, Sri Devi's uh, kids. And I met Naresh. Um, he was a new immigrant to the United States working on some stuff that I was leading. And he lived here in Minneapolis, had really no friends. I mean, again, he just dropped into this community to do a job and had no connections and um, one bedroom apartment. He had like a, a, a table and a lawn chair, a bed and a TV was you know, pretty much it. And he would come over to our house for Thanksgiving. And it, it, what's interesting to me even about this photo is He's talking to, to Reza, and, and well, and Kyle's just climbing over stuff, but he's talking to Reza. And um, going back a few years, uh, Naresh would be at my house, and he almost kind of seemed like a big uncle. He loved my kids, who were younger at that point. And he, we treated him like family. And it built a relationship, and now he's in Denver, Colorado. That's where we are in this photo, in this house of 6,000 square feet. Um, he doesn't know Jesus, and Sri Devi and Reza and Kyle don't know Jesus, and I know for my son Jude, 
Um, in leaving their house, it bothers them that they don't know Jesus. Um, they're Hindu, and the Jesus and Christianity is just such an interesting foreign concept to even try to bridge with them. But I represent Jesus to them. Not necessarily I can't make them come to Christ, develop a relationship with Jesus, but God calls me to be real and present in their lives, and we've been that. Um, and I appreciate that. And, and I love actually in this that my, my son, who is an engineer, and dealing with machine learning and robotics and stuff, geeking out um, on engineering and mathematical concepts and stuff, uh, is spending time with a 12-year-old in the photo, just listening to her and telling her, telling her story. And I love that about him, that he is all in on his work with great excellence, but he loves people and enters into his life. So I, we, we can do both. Fair? Another myth, this idea of declining sacredness is how I've termed it. Um, this idea that vocational ministry, whether that be church, missionaries, um, parachurch mis uh, ministries, is some of how like more sacred, and then we kind of maybe go down to other types of vocations that we might describe as kind of caring, um, helping types of type, types of things, and uh, which could be you know nurses, doctors, social work, uh, teachers, nonprofit, socials. I mean, there's you know, whatever you put into that kind of caring, and then what I call the cubicle, uh, mostly because it fit on my diagram, but it's kind of a catch-all um, to other stuff. I mean, the cubicle could be, I'm in sales, I'm working in a warehouse, I'm working in manufacturing, I'm in the trades, I'm in sales, I'm in retail, or I'm at a bank in a cubicle, or I'm in an insurance company in a cubicle. Some of it literally is in a cubicle, and sometimes we find ourselves on the corporate side working in a cubicle, wondering <laughs> in this mass of you know, business that we're working through, wondering, does my work really matter at the end of the day with people? And, and I think it does. Now, the, I think a more correct biblical theological understanding, and, and this comes from Alan Tennyson, um, and Alan will be in chapel tomorrow and Friday. Yay, don't miss it. Um, but he, he describes, and, and, and again, I'm borrowing this form, formulation from him, really there's two ways of dividing work. There's sacred work that God can work through, and um, sinful work that God doesn't work through. And here's, here's the, the news. You can be in full-time church ministry and execute it in a sinful way. I have seen decisions and behaviors within a faith institution or faith organization context that atheist leaders of major corporations wouldn't even think of doing because it's wrong, it's immoral, it's unethical, and such. So you can execute faith-based work sinfully, and you can execute um, non-faith-based work, uh, corporate work, sales, sinfully. You can execute ministry with a sacredness that honors God, and you can execute sales and marketing and starting a new business and teaching and social work. All of these can fit in both categories. So the question is, what am I doing? And am I doing what I'm doing every day in a sacred way? that honors God and God's working through it, or am I doing it in a sin sinful way where God's not working through it? At the end of the day, it's really, there's one biblical, one biblical truth. All of our work is intended to be sacred if we allow it, and God has an opportunity to work through it, and it's an opportunity to glorify him. You know, here, here's kind of how I view the world, and this is me geeking out with a Venn diagram. 
Um, I, I, I'm not sure if I think about the world first through, I mean, this is being, being honest, I'm not sure if I think through as an economics kind of mindset or a theological mindset first or last. And it probably depends on the day or the situation or, or what I'm engaging. Um, at times, there are synergies between the two. And actually, I think if I were to draw this better, um, I'd probably make the synergy bigger because I think a lot of times there's more synergy than I have tensions. But again, that, that mix kind of ebbs and flows. Um, there's always tension. And I would say this, that if you don't have tension, you probably have a spiritual blind spot, right? I mean, it, it's something that's unexamined because there's always going to be a tension. Economics tells me, um, self, and I think this is true, self-interested behavior can be very helpful and actually productive and socially optimizing. Geeking out in language there. Um, self-interest can be a good thing. And Paul tells us in Philippians, don't act out of your own self-interest, but consider the interest of others as higher than yourselves. I have to deal with that tension and try to resolve that. Um, specifically, kind of in the space, and as it relates to kind of this conversation, it's really economics and a theology of the kingdom of God. And here's, here's my understanding of the kingdom of God. Uh, you've got the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and there's about a 400-year gap before, before we get to the New Testament, the Greek uh, Christian scriptures. And in that period, it wasn't like people weren't writing. People were writing, and they're talking about the kingdom of God. And so when you step into the New Testament, you're thinking about how were people receiving Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God, realize it's not done in a vacuum. They were talking about the kingdom of God for those 400 years in between. Here's a sense of kind of what some of that intertestamental literature kind of says is that when we think about the world and the nation of Israel specifically, they had a distinct pattern. Here's the pattern. Um, sin, judgment, repentance, and restoration. And then they go back into sin, judgment, repentance, and restoration. And then they, and the cycle continues. And the idea of the kingdom of God was that at some point, God's going to step into human history, and he's going to set, uh, settle it once and for all. And we live in restoration. This, this idea that all of the well-being of humanity is restored, and we live in restoration, and the, that vicious cycle ends. And here's my theology, and I'll put some data up on the, on the screen to, I think, kind of try to demonstrate that, is that our daily work advances the kingdom of God. We've seen remarkable growth in human flourishing and well-being throughout the globe, and um, you have secular atheists who recognize, hey, there's a lot of good things that have been going on in the world in the last couple hundred years, and they attribute it to, well, we as people have done a pretty amazing job, not perfect, but there's been a growth in economic flourishing and well-being, not evenly distributed, um, but it's there. And I would say, I look at that, the economics of kind of things that have gone on in our world in the last couple of centuries that are unique, and I'll demonstrate that for you in a second, um, and say, I see the kingdom of God at work in there, and our work every day through our sometimes mundane sometimes they seem boring jobs, is part of how God is serving this world and establishing his kingdom. The, the kingdom of God is a salvation relationship with Jesus. That's part of it, but it's a, more than that. It's physical, emotional, financial, well-being, flourishing, the entirety of, in Hebrew, the shalom, 
human well-being and flourishing in our jobs every day help that? But you've got questions like, what if I'm in sales? And again, Alan, I, here's a story I got from Alan Tennyson. Again, he'll be speaking the next two days in chapel. He was talking to somebody at church who said, man, I'm just having trouble seeing God in my daily work. He's like, I'm in sales. And I sell stuff, and I've been successful, and um, I can make a good living, and I've been able to be generous in the church because of my sales role and everything. And I've been able to, again, uh, provide for my family and pay for college and everything. But, man, I just do not see So he's talking about how he doesn't see God in his work. And at some point, Alan uh, stops him. He says, you know, in this entire conversation, you haven't told me what it is that you sell. And the guy says, well, I sell medical devices that save people's lives. Have you ever said something and it's like, it's like a thought bubble just kind of coming out of your mouth and you realize as you say it, you're like, how stupid have I been? Here he's been not seeing his work as mattering and what does he do? He sells medical devices that save people's lives. I see the kingdom of God in that. So you might say, well, okay, medical devices, and we've got a bunch of local companies here. We've got Medtronic, Abbott, Boston Scientific, Coloplast, Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Twin Cities metro areas, huge, honestly, for medical devices uh, that have profound impact on people's lives here in the United States and around the world. We can see that, but what if I sell things like Caterpillar, big construction equipment and stuff? Could I see God at work in that? Like, okay, medical devices, I mean, that's almost like helping, caring kinds of stuff. Um, what about selling other things? And, and I have, we have an alumni from here, uh, from North Central, that is killing it, selling, um, you know, uh, things like uh, Caterpillar equipment and things. And she and I actually, when she came into North Central, spent like two hours talking about what we're talking about here today. She's like, I love, love, love. I mean, she loves sales. I love sales. She's like, how do I see God in that? And we just unpacked that for a couple hours at the end of, of one of my days. But how do I think about that? Um, I have a shovel. This, this comes from a genuine, bona fide Minnesota farm. You know, we don't need large construction equipment. We could actually use shovels. And for centuries and millennia of human existence, we used rudimentary tools. Let me tell you, people's lives are better because we have that equipment. We could look at, you could think about tangible impacts on people's lives because we have that equipment. It, her and their sales role, she could think about the lives that are impacted. Now, um, slight tangent here, let's talk about artificial intelligence. Um, we could actually employ more people by saying, let's get rid of the large equipment and go back to using shovels. I mean, at some point, we have technological improvements that challenge people, and AI is actually one of those right now. And I'm not trying to make it, uh, a complete distinction between a shovel and AI, but realize that every technolo technological improvement and advancement has been questioned and people worried about it over time. Again, AI is unique and it's different and stuff, but honestly, to me, it seems like a tool. Um, in, in the investment space, the, you think about technology as either um, uh, something that's a pain, you use like painkiller or a vitamin kind of men, uh, metaphor. A painkiller, it reduces costs, or a vitamin, it creates new opportunities. The reality is that new technologies probably reduce costs, and they create new opportunities and new jobs that we never knew existed you're probably, you are guaranteed to have opportunities and jobs that no longer exist today in the future 
we can't even conceptualize because they haven't been created yet. But does something like the replacement of shovels with equipment or replacement of some things with AI uh, uh, impact jobs? Here, here's a data point um, over the last, uh, what, what did I pull this from? This is civilian labor force from 1970 today. Is that, is that trend line going down? No, it's, it's an upward slope. We have more people working in the United States uh, than we did or ever have in history. Now you see a little blips and stuff and you can see the COVID year 2020, kind of a sharp downturn. Um, but th that trend line's been up. Over that time period, do you think we've had some technological improvements? We've had a lot of technological improvements. Have we increased international trade? That's always one. Hey, we're losing jobs to international trade. Honestly, I don't see trade, technological improvements impacting negatively in the long run. Now, it doesn't mean that that's going to be the way in the, in the future, but I expect it to be. Um, what about income? Uh, yes, we've got growth in jobs, but people are making less. Um, I don't think so. Again, you know, 2020 to 2022, we saw kind of a drop in real, real income after, real wages, earnings after inflation. Uh, but in general, the trend line's also been up. So we have more people employed, and in general, we're making more. This is median. So for, for each of these points um, on there, half of Americans are making more, and half of Americans are making less than that. So we've seen a huge growth. But here's, here's a chart that actually I find kind of intriguing. Um, and actually, part of it's really boring. If you take the part from like 10,000 BC, <laughs> to about 1700, from a data perspective, okay, not everybody here is expert, but I'll just describe that technically as boring. Okay, the, the, the word for that is boring. Like nothing happened. For generations of, and millennia, uh, for millennia of generations of people across the globe had remarkable equality and is equal, equal poverty. What I would describe as subsistence level living. 99% of people made 600, maybe 1,000, if you're lucky, $1,500, $2,000 for your family a year. You worked each day to put food on the table for that day, and you had maybe the 1%, the nobles, the, rich, the kings, and, and such, who had more, but you didn't have a middle class. And then in 1750-ish, uh, something changed, and things started to get better, and we actually had this thing called growth that had never happened before in human history. And in this, I, I see God establishing his kingdom. Now, you know, like it's, it's data, and, and Professor Sovey's geeking out. Behind this data are parents who get to feed their kids that day that didn't used to. Behind this data is a family that doesn't bury a child under the age of five from a preventable childhood disease. There's human well-being behind this, these numbers on here. There's flourishing, and again, it's not equally distributed. In fact, if I were to put the United States on that, I'd actually have the United States trailing that because honestly, our uptick didn't really start until the uh, 20th century. Like 1900 forward is honestly where in the United States. So you go back into New York City circa 1900, and things look pretty ugly. And across a lot of the United States, it was hard during most of the uh, 19th century. And then in, during the 20th century, we started to grow along with somebody else, with everybody else. Um, how does this look in terms of um, extreme poverty? In 19, uh, 1998, kind of on the left side of the graph, we had about a world population of about six billion people, and fully a third of them lived in extreme poverty, two billion. And here's the remarkable thing, and I 
I'm not even sure as much as I've studied this that I can fully explain it because it seems pretty remarkable to me that we added to the world population. So now we're just slightly over 7 billion people and we have 650 million in extreme poverty, which is every person in extreme poverty is one too many. But would you maybe agree with me a drop of 2 billion to 650 million is a good thing? And the work that you do every day is part of the answer. We've experienced remarkable economic growth that's unevenly distributed throughout the world, and we have to figure that out. But even parts of the world that haven't completely caught up are in the process of catching up. If you think about this, even um, when our country was founded, 90% of the people, if you think about jobs that you do, is anybody here thinking about going into agriculture, farming? Anybody, agriculture, farming? Both of my grandparents on both sides of the family farmed. At one point in the United States, 90% of people were involved in farming agriculture of some sort. Right now it's less than 2%, barely a little bit over 1%. So we're feeding more people around the world and spending a whole lot less resources and time and energy to do it. Which I think is a good thing. Again, I see that as the kingdom of God being established in your daily work as part of that. Um, Okay, so we talked about sales. What about if I work in a restaurant? <laughs> now, this could be fast food. This could be um, counter service. It could be um, table service. I put up fast food on here. Let me, let me tell you a story. Um, I, at one point, was asked to do a supervised visit between a son and his dad. The son hadn't seen his dad in over a year for reasons. You understand that there may be reasons. Uh, social work majors get this. Um, there may be reasons why we might not have a parent in contact with their, their, their child and why we might do the visit as a supervised visit. So I did that. Um, and I, so I walk into a McDonald's on a Saturday morning with a son. He gets to see his dad for the first time. And when he gets to see his grandparents because they haven't been able to see him as well. And just a look on his face and he said, Dad, as he walked in there, would break your heart. And they got to sit and talk and, and it was amazing. Now, I, I think about the person that's working at um, the store that day. Can I join you? Um, and they probably go home from work, and somebody asks them, how did their day go? Ask me how my day went. How'd your day go? Man, I had a couple customers just yell at me and cuss me out. And a couple of people didn't show up for work today, so we were understaffed, and it was crazy. And my boss is kind of a jerk, and it really teaches me crappy. Could, could you imagine the kind of bad day that you might have at a job? Does that seem unrealistic? And yet, that, that worker goes home not realizing that a miracle happened at the restaurant that day. And you might push back and say, well, how can I, if I'm working at a restaurant, know the stories of everybody that comes in here? You can't. Um, my prayer is that over the course of your career and your life, you get to see some of the impacts and the God stories of the things that you do, and sometimes you get to do that, but a lot of times you don't. But I think if you, if you have a creative eye and a God's eye to see what you're doing that day, there that day, you realize that being in a restaurant isn't primarily about serving food, but it's allowing people to have relationships. At a point in my life, um, when I was in graduate school, we were in a dark, dark period and a business leader called up and said, hey, let's go to dinner, a bunch of us, let's go to dinner. I called up Carrie, actually, and said, get over to Mama San's, which is the restaurant we end up going to. And we experienced more healing around that table at a restaurant than I would at a year of attending church 
no offense to church, but the table can be a healing place. And I could go into a restaurant every single day, and it could be honestly a difficult day from a work perspective, but if I have the attitude that what I'm doing here is I'm helping people cultivate relationships, it changes maybe my perspective on the work that I'm doing. This is a cost of air travel. Again, um, it, something th good things that you want, you want the graph to go up, and things that you would like to cost less or be less, you'd like the graph to go down. So here's the cost of air travel, and it's going down, which I think, would you agree if you're, you're flying someplace, is a good thing. Um, I'll even put this in context, a couple of contexts. My, one of my kids is flying to Taiwan later this week to attend a wedding. And I was thinking about that, and I'm thinking, um, my grandparents would have never have thought <laughs> to fly to Taiwan uh, on, you know, quickly to go to a wedding. Because honestly, it would have been cost prohibitive for them. And, um, and even uh, about two years ago, my, my, I got news on a Thursday into Friday morning that my father was rushed to the hospital. So at three or four in the morning, I'm booking a last minute ticket to, to Phoenix, um, realizing that I'm probably not gonna get there before he dies, maybe. Um, and I booked the ticket for $400 last minute, four in the morning, flight leaving at 8.30, $400. Honestly, when I was in college, $1,500, $2,000. I mean, th th these numbers have real impacts to them on, on people's lives. It's much cheaper for us to do things, and there's good things that happen when we get to fly places at a cheaper cost. How are we able to do this? Well, in part because we, we invented planes. So, I mean, early 1900s, if you think about human flourishing and well-being, it took about 4,000 years between the time human beings invented the plow, to plow fields. The plow made life easier. But it, between the time the humans invented the plow and the time they figured out, hey, we could hook this up to a horse or an oxen and actually make that a little bit easier, it was 4,000 years. 4,000 years. And you're like, how did it take so long? Well, you also had to domesticate the animal. And, and, but it took 4,000 years. We invented flight. The idea that I could take an, uh, an object that's heavier than air and keep it airborne, and 65, 000, sorry, and 65 years later, we put human beings on the moon. 4,000 to take a plow and attach it to a horse, 65 years to go from we don't know how to fly, boom, we're on the moon. That's remarkable. And this is sort of a reflection of that, not only that we can do it, but that it costs less. Um, engineering is a part of that. I'm a dad of an engineer, so I'm proud of that. Um, there's other things. Uh, was, uh, oh, there's other people, though, that I, I think that are living, going back to my cubicles example or illustration or, or metaphor, there's people living in cubicles that are part of this equation, too. The reason that it's inexpensive or relatively inexpensive to fly is because Banks, financial institutions have figured out how to finance these types of projects to make it more cheap. So you could be working at a bank, financial institution, wondering if your life matters. You're allowing projects like this to flourish. You're allowing people to do their dreams, live their dreams, live better lives because you're working at that financial institution. You may be working in an insurance company in underwriting of all things. And you're going, underwriting is the most boring uh, part of insurance ever. Part of why that's cheaper is because insurance companies insure the risks that allows them to provide the service to you cheaper. Are you hearing that the work that we do, even sort of mundane things, if I view them through a different lens, 
actually matters in the lives of people, and God works through it to establish his kingdom to make things better. McCloskey, and I'll, I'll try to draw this to a close so that we can open up for questions. If you had questions, you know, post them. I haven't looked to see there. Deidre McCloskey is um, an economist, uh, now a professor emeritus at the University of Illinois at Chicago. For years, educated a lot of economists at the University of Chicago. And um, McCloskey had, had, has this unique um, faculty title, um, she's a professor of economics, history, English, communications, and the kitchen sink at the, anyway, I mean, so brings kind of a full-orbed kind of view, um, first-rate economist, but is viewing the world through kind of a social historical lens, and has three very long volumes on why things are better today than they used to be. On the next slide, I'll give you clues. If you want to kind of Google something shorter in, in, in my economics class this semester, uh, I have a, a McCloskey assigned reading. Um, she describes the fact that things are better and we have this astronomical growth in human flourishing and well-being because we, we've been innovative. We've allowed innovation. And um, mathematically, I've shorthanded it here, her in innovation function, the idea that... Um, in human history, we haven't always said that people who invent things are good. In fact, um, here's the reality. Sometimes people who invent things are not very nice people and they can be a little bit quirky. And so we've tended to look down on those who invent things. And at some point, culturally, we've said, hey, maybe we'll, we'll view them differently. And if you, if you don't, we even just read um, English literature from the uh, Regency period, say, you know, 1800 or so, and look at how those who run businesses and do new things are viewed by the aristocracy at the time. They were still in the process of shifting views. But we started to say innovators are actually worthy and innovators do good work. And we actually said, hey, we'll allow you to do new innovations and try new things. Oh, and hey, we're going to allow you to reap the rewards financially of the works that you do. And that combination has allowed us to go from, again, the difference between a plow 4,000 years before we figured out how to hook it up to a horse to airplanes invented. 65 years later, we have people on the moon. It's because we've been able to invent and innovate. And McCloskey's line is it's not infrastructure and it's not even education and, and, and such. It's, it's necessaries, those things are. It's really innovative ideas that change the world because they don't wear out. And your idea spawns another idea and spawns another idea and we get this rapid growth. I'm going to actually stop there. We'll go to Q&A and let's see if I can see if we've got some responses. And I've got either zero responses or responses. Oh, I've got a few responses. You can toss up some responses on there, again, on, on the bit.ly. Um, well, let's see. Uh, how can work be sacred if my coworkers or boss doesn't always do the right thing? That's an interesting question. It, it's, um, let me let you in on a little secret. Opening things up in this way is uh, challenging because I have absolutely no idea what questions people are going to ask, and that's actually a good one. How can it be sacred if my coworkers and boss doesn't always do the right thing? Here's, here's my career advice for you. Over the now and for the rest of your life, engage your career, your life with other people. At church, we sometimes call that a small group where you can bounce things off of. So you can have the opportunity to say, here's the things that I'm going through, what I'm going through at work. 
Now, it could be, hey, this is a work situation where my boss, my coworkers are being unethical and I need to leave. Or it may be a, a situation where um, I need to work through it and maybe I'm influencing my workplace by articulating here's a better way to do things or a more honorable way to do things. It's hard for you individually, it's hard for me individually to do that without the advice, counsel of otherwise people who love Jesus. So again, my encouragement is now for the rest of your life, um, intentionally connect yourself to other people who follow Jesus. And I've got a small group at church, and I also have a, a leader that I meet almost every Friday to encourage and spur one another on. So again, I think some of these questions are best done in the context of, um, of relationship. So can it be sacred? Again, the sacredness of your work is not dependent on your coworkers. If you make your sacredness of your work depend on your coworkers or your boss, you're handing them a whole lot of power. And you have agency. In fact, actually, um, we had, um, we had uh, who did we have? We had Manny Arango in um, chapel last week. I thought phenomenal. And th this is my representation of what he said, me putting his words in my own language. Um, I was hearing him say that you have agency over your spiritual life. He talked about the fact that what matters is where you place your faith. The faith is neutral where I place my faith. In your job, you could place your faith on your coworkers or your boss. Or I could face it, place it in God. And even sometimes when I've dealt with anxiety at work, um, I've had to have a counselor tell me, go, oh, by the way, who are you placing your trust in? I'm like, oh, I'm placing my trust in that person at work. And, um, and it's making me anxious. So again, Manny Arango, you have agency, and so you can, you can uh, impact things. Um, how do you t deal with the tension of what you've learned from economics versus theology and scripture? I'll, I'll use the uh, self-interested kind of behavior thing. I think part of what has allowed this astronomical, we almost call it a um, hockey stick growth that's impacted people's lives positively is because... Um, People are acting out of their self-interest. Did anybody buy gas today? Gasoline for a car. Anybody buy gas? Come on. Anybody? Oh, anybody buy a coffee? <laughs> Maybe that's an easier one. Anybody buy a coffee? Um, we buy things, um, and we don't buy them because we want to uh, help the owner of that business put their kids through college. Now, because we buy stuff from them, they may help them put kids through college, but you usually buy something because it, they, they're selling something that you want. And they don't sell you something. They, they don't sell my, my wife, apparently, buy gas. Um, they don't sell her gas because they're like, she needs to get places. They do it because they're offering a service, a business, um, and it, it meets their needs. Sometimes us mutually um, engaging in self-interested behavior helps us all. But Paul says, don't act out of your self-interest. How I theologically thought through and balanced that is, I think, um, when we act in our own self-interest, that can go off the rails because we also have a sinful sin nature. And so when I say that I think in economics, self-interested behavior is very, very helpful, God calls me to not act in my own self-interest unilaterally, meaning I'm executing my self-interest under the covering of what God's called me to do and who he's called me to be. That's how I've kind of wrestled with the tension between an economic self-interest is generally a pretty good thing, not always, but generally a pretty good thing, and Paul tells us not to act that way. Um, I think I can reconcile those, and I'm still working on it. Um, just looking at responses here. 
do you think there will be an AI-driven church? Uh, here's the thing. C.S. Lewis said the gospel is timeless at its core. The message of the gospel doesn't change, but we dress it. But it can wear a modern dress. I think I'm pretty okay. And, and he, here's the thing. I think reaching people for Jesus matters, and we ought to be able to take some risks and try some things out and be innovative in how we do it. I see Professor Mark Skiba in the back. If we can be innovative at selling cereal, we can be more innovative in selling uh, the truth of the gospel or representing the truth of the gospel to the world. And if artificial intelligence helps us do that effectively or more efficiently, let's do it. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm okay trying things and maybe even taking a few risks, trying something that doesn't work. And, I, and again, I apply that on a business side as well as on the uh, corporate side. Um, question, what is your sacred work? Here, here, here's, here's the interesting thing. Um, I've served as a partner in a consulting firm, so I've done corporate work. I've served as a pastor in a church, so I've done church work, and now I'm at North Central. Um, years ago, I formulated kind of how God has wired me through kind of a one paragraph statement. It was something like this. Now, I was at, at a church at the time, so I formulated in churchy language. It's God has kind of wired me to learn and uh, understand new ideas and concepts. And then he allows me to use those concepts to help other people grow spiritually. That's that in a, in a church context. Now, you put me in a corporate context where I'm helping companies do better. Um, God has wired me to learn new ideas and concepts, and he allows me to help companies improve their operational efficiency by using that. And it looks like I'm the same person, but it's just the context that I do it is different. Oh, and I could step into a university, and God's wired me to learn new concepts and ideas, and he allows me to use those to help students grow in knowledge in their career and achieve their best in life. Fundamentally, how God has wired me hasn't changed, and I could use it in multiple different contexts. Um, we've got one minute remaining, and I've got the eye of a needle and a camel question, which is way too much to unpack in one minute. Um, but I, if, you, if you submit uh, things, I'll do my best to see if we can somehow maybe get some responses to some that, that we weren't able to hit. Would you stand with me in, in the last minute here? And I, we're going to sort of do a, what I'm going to call a guided prayer. And I'd like you to stare at your feet. Again, don't close your, your, your eyes for this prayer. I'd like you to stare at your feet. And that square yard where your feet are now standing, that is holy ground and it's a mission field. And you can honor and glorify God there. But if you step out of this building and keep staring at your, your feet in that square yard, you step out of this building, Wherever you go, it's still an opportunity to glorify and worship God. If those feet are now standing in a public school, worship God there. If they're in a counseling clinic, worship God there. Keep staring at that square. Every moment of the rest of your life, if you step into a corporate boardroom, it's still a mission ground and an opportunity to honor and glorify God. If you step out of Minnesota, someplace around the globe, Every room, every city, every village, every community that you step into, that spot, and now honestly for the rest of your life, think, wherever my feet are planted, that square yard that I'm standing is holy, it's sacred. The stuff that I'm doing there has an opportunity to glorify God without exception. Heavenly Father, 
I thank you that you've called each one of us, that each one of us is your unique masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good work which you have prepared in advance for us to do. No person here is an accident. And the work that we do matters, or it can, if we offer to you as worship. As we take out of this place our everyday ordinary lives, our sleeping, our eating, our going to work and walking around kind of lives, we just today and for the rest of our lives lay it before you as an offering. We pray that it would be sacred and honoring to you and it would not only express love for you, but love for people in your creation. Be glorified in and through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you serve him for the rest of your lives.